I'm Anushka Dukas and I've been designing jewellery for 30 years and collecting charms for as long as I can remember. In this new podcast, I'll be asking a series of extraordinary women to tell me their life story in seven charms. And today's guest is Lucia van der Post. So it was love at first sight, was it? Apparently he went home and said he'd met the girl he was going to marry. And what did you say? Well, I certainly thought it was pretty nice. I mean, as he stood against the window and we talked for about three hours. Three hours? <laughs> I love that. For me, there are so few things that can stand the test of time and evoke a memory like a tiny, detailed charm. A very special 18-karat gold biography. Today, I'm at home in London where I'm delighted to be meeting Lucia van der Post. I think of her as the original tastemaker and influencer. Doyen of luxury, the creative force behind the Financial Times' How to Spend It magazine and curator of beautiful things. So Lucia, I'm, I'm really, really thrilled that you agreed to do this. Thank you so much. Um, and if anybody knows about luxury and jewellery and all things beautiful, you do. So... Your first charm was a, I think it's called a cape urchin or a, a, sea, a sea urchin. A sea urchin. So I, when I looked up sea urchin, because I wasn't sure whether it was going to be black with spikes. You know, that <laughs> it's was. a beautiful aquamarine green. And I would like to use something like chrysophase or uh, fluorite. That would be a perfect colour. Be a perfect colour, wouldn't Crasophase, it? Chrysophase, yes. So soft. And then highlighted with little brown diamonds, which were all those little knobbly bits mm. on the top. And also the thing about um, shells like that is if you hold them up to your ear. I haven't done it with a cape urchin, but I'd be interested whether you hold it up to your ear. Would you hear anything like you do on cowrie shells? And things? I don't remember that. And the one that I still have is framed in a little... It's a little sort of portrait of a beach in Cape Town. It has a little sort of skeleton of a fish and the sea urchin shell. I've, I saw it in a shop in Cape Town and it so reminded me of the many happy, happy days I'd spent on Clifton Beach as a child. But also when I grew up, um, things were very difficult. My father was um, reported missing, presumed dead in the war. So we were very poor. But being in Cape Town, somehow it didn't... All your pleasures were free the sun the sea the mountain picnics um so it was a wonderful place to grow up and remember heavenly days on the beach yes i bet so so growing up without your father around was it just you i had an older brother but um when my father was presumed dead an uncle um took care of his education and decided to send him to michael house it was the kind of Eaton of of right. South Africa, right. so you growing up was really you with your with your with mother. my mother. Yes, yeah. that's right. So it was a bit like being an only child. It was. I mean, I know I'm an only child, so I kind of know what that's like. Mm. But your relationship with your mother must have been incredibly close. It was, but it, life was very difficult for her because she had not been brought up to earn a living. Right. You know, girls in those days weren't educated properly, so she couldn't earn much of a living. She had worked as a secretary. And then she sent me to boarding school because it was too difficult to work and have me roaming around <laughs> after school and supervised. Yeah, no, absolutely. Did she? Did you enjoy boarding school? Loved boarding school. Um, were there lots of friends around, or was that? There were because I made lots of school friends, and we had one particular family that was very close, who I often stayed with, where we 
it was a ritual that we always had Sunday evening suppers on Clifton Beach. We'd have sandwiches, and it's famous for watching the sun go down. Oh, and we used to have Marmite sandwiches and watch the sun go down. We thought that was lovely. Well, the simple pleasures. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's well, right. Well, the simple pleasures are still the best pleasures, actually, yeah. aren't they? Well, many of the simple things have gone, like clean rivers yes. and seas that are unpolluted and all those things that I had in South Africa as a child. That you took, uh, we all took for granted. totally took yeah. for granted. Um, one of the things I love, uh, Lucia, you talk in, in your book, I think, about Christmas with your mother and your memories of, of Christmas and wrapping presents for her. I suppose what sparked me off was that I get so immensely irritated with people that go on about the cooking and the presents. And my thought, having grown up, Christmases were quite lonely for us. And... I always think it's such a pleasure to have so many people to buy presents for and so many people to cook for. And one of the things I said in my book is that if you told anybody in the third world that people in the first world were complaining when they had money to buy presents, houses to house people, food to feed them, and they were complaining about it. Yeah, how embarrassing. You would I mean, think how spoiled. Yes, how spoiled. Absolutely. And I just relish it. I love Having, I only have two children, but they have each married and they have children. And I love nothing more than having them all. And the more to cook for, the better. Well, I, well I've been lucky enough to enjoy some hospitality. <laughs> yeah. And you, you obviously love entertaining and love cooking. It's a very and South looking... African thing that of, of you invite people into your house. That's what they're for. So staying in South Africa, that brings me to your second charm, do you pronounce it's the protea flower? It's the national flower of South Africa? It's the national flower of South Africa, yes. I'd seen it as a kind of carved rose quartz in the middle for the bud that's not quite out. And then I'd seen it as yes. pink sapphires. Um, and then a ye- yellow gold stem and moving leaves. But tell me a bit more about why you've chosen this charm, because... Well, I mean... If I were choosing for non-sentimental and totally objective reasons, I don't think it would be my favourite flower. But it's for all the sentimental connotations. Cape Cape Town Mountain is covered with protea. Um, And it's so, you know, when you live away from the country of your birth, you feel rather more sentimental about it, I think, than if you actually live in it. So it's rather for sentimental reasons. I don't think it's the most beautiful of flowers, but it's certainly a very strong, resilient flower, which is uh, what I think all my pioneering (laughs) family had to be to survive. I mean, I often think they left Holland and and they had no idea what they were going to find. And there were no telephones, no quick flights home if you got sick or anything. Why did they leave Holland? Um, Rumour is that there was some minor financial scandal in the background. Right. (laughs) But the natural place for them to go was obviously... Uh, Africa. Well, South Africa, I suppose the Dutch, the Cape Dutch, you know, um, colonised it on the way to the West Indies. It was, it started as a um, refreshment station for the boats going to the West Indies, which Holland owned. People got scurvy if they didn't have fresh fruit and vegetables. And they started a small colony there to grow the fresh fruits and vegetables. So the ships on the way to the West Indies could fill up. God, absolutely fascinating. What a lesson in history. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's how it started. Oh, yeah. 
And then, of course, it grew from there. I mean, it is, I don't know if you've ever been, it's an astonishingly beautiful country. I've never, I've never been to, you know, to and Cape And particularly Town. the Cape area, the vineyard, well, now filled with vineyards and beautiful mountains and rivers. It's very beautiful. I mean, you were at university um, in Cape Town, weren't yes, you? Yes, I was. Um, so tell me about that. That must have been fascinating to be growing up and, I guess, becoming grown up, if you like, in the world of apartheid? Well, I'd been to the most terrible school. I mean, it was, they educated you to be kept in swimming pools and and, and, um, tennis courts by rich white men. They they didn't educate you to have, (laughs) to earn your own living. And I didn't do very well at school because I was so uninterested in anything that was being taught. But Cape Town University was wonderful the most wonderful teachers, and there I actually buckled down and got first Um, because it was so interesting and so wonderful. So what did you read? English and political philosophy. And I'd love to know more about what South Africa was like then in that that time. One of my very, very poignant memories is... Cape Town, you must remember, was slightly separate from the rest of South Africa. It, it's it's much less Africanized. We had a population of what you call Cape Coloreds, who were mixed, white and African, and white and Hottentot and white and Bushmen. They, they were mixed, and they were right. called Cape Coloreds. Right. And they, under the apartheid regime, where everybody was categorized, you were white, Cape Colored, African, or i.e. black, or Indian. And they had a separate designation. And they, there was the, a special voting role for the Cape Coloreds. They got the vote long before blacks did. Um, so I grew up with Cape Coloreds. I, I was very insulated from an African culture. But it was it sort of dawned on me, I'm afraid, very slowly how unfair society was. Because I lived in a white society. I didn't see how the blacks or the Cape Coloreds lived. Um, it dawned on me very gradually. I At do rem- university? No, before. I was sent to live because family things were difficult with an aunt and uncle for three years, my last three years at school, who lived in Durban. And I can remember the idiocies of people's attitude to race. They had a Zulu cook, and the Zulu cook was allowed to cook the meat course, but for some reason his hands were too contaminated to be allowed to cook the pudding course. (laughs) So my aunt and myself and my cousin would do the pudding course. (laughs) How bizarre. I mean, somebody related it very much to Soviet thinking. In order to make it work, you have to, it's based on a lot of... Um, idiotic premises. But in terms of of the way it kind of shaped you intellectually and um, politically, was that something that that really happened at university? No, I think it began to happen before my aunts, in spite of the way they treated their Zulu servants, joined something called the Black Sash, which was a movement of white women who used to protest. They used to go and stand outside the hall and wear the the city halls and wear black sashes. (laughs) (laughs) And we used to go and join them. And this was all our form of protest. I can't quite remember what else we did. They must have done something else. (laughs) That's all I remember. (laughs) So after after university, was it three years university? Yes. It still was. Um, But of course, your father came back into your life once you got to London. And was that in the grand plan or what made you decide well, to I do that? Well, I think my father and stepmother could see that I was a bit trapped 
by living alone with my mother. It wasn't a very expensive way to live. And my father had lived in London. And my brother had come to London before me. He was eight years older. And so they'd come and see if you like it. Right. After I finished university. So I came. Excited. I mean... Oh, very. Excited. I I needed to get away. Yeah. You know. But it must have been terribly hard to leave your mother. I think it was very hard for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I but I did need to get out of there. My father could see that, yeah. and my and my stepmother, who was very good. Your so your father once it had been discovered that he was around when you were quite. Oh yes, you, I mean know. he he never came back to my mother, but I mean I remember meeting him for 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 me it was the first time. When you were what age? Ten. Goodness. And and was he? I mean, was oh, he was unbelievably glamorous. He was a big war hero because you know he'd been a prisoner of war and he'd been behind the enemy lines and he had this great story to tell and he was fantastically handsome, and incredibly charismatic. Yes. And so I still remember meeting him for breakfast at this posh Cape Town hotel. But then the sadness of realizing he wasn't coming back. But he came. He would come to South Africa twice. Yeah, and he would stay in the Grand Hotel in Cape Town, the Mount Nelson. A famous hotel. The famous yeah. hotel, and I would always go along for lunches or breakfast or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So actually, so going to England was a kind of so hugely exciting to get to know him a bit better. Presumably. Exactly, exactly. Um, and presumably you came on a boat, did you? Yes, yeah. wonderful. Mm. Because I was travelling alone and my father paid, he said I had to travel first class. Oh, wonderful, yeah. Yeah, it was yes. absolutely wonderful. The Union Castle boats were glorious. But So you got on this boat all alone in yep. your first class cabin, so in not that ca- bad. No, very nice. a luxury there, I feel. That was yeah, absolutely, was no, a- it was <laughs> wonderful. So then you arrived in London and... Your father met you off the boat? He did, but what I do remember is the very first night mm. they were going to dinner with Princess Margaret. Oh, right. Oh, goodness, how glamorous. <laughs> so, my brother was deputed to take me to dinner, but I remember that sort of thinking, oh, it's my first night in London. and Princess Margaret's I, oh, more important than you were. Yes. Yeah, no, I can see that's actually quite... quite well, quite on the other cutting. hand, I can see their point of view too. She's going to be here a long time. We can have lots of dinners with her. And and how did they, how did they know Princess Margaret? Well, my father by then had begun to become famous. Yes, his book, I remember. I mean, he'd been all over the Cape Town papers when he came back from the war because he was a sort of glamorous war figure. But the first time I remember was at my school in Durban. One day, the Af- Afrikaans teacher, who who was always cross with me, said, your name is Van der Post and you can't speak Afrikaans. <laughs> I said, well, no, I grew up in Cape Town. <laughs> and my father's away. Um, she came into the class she put her hands on her hip and she said so madam I suppose we'll be riding around in a Rolls Royce now and I looked at her I didn't know what she was on about apparently that day in the morning paper it had been all over South African author has a bestseller book club of the month it's taking the world by storm these I didn't even know he'd written a book oh god didn't know what she was talking about. But by the time you got to London, you knew he was he was. He'd famous. written these two books, yeah. that um, particularly the Last World of the Kalahari. Now, first, it was Venture to the Interior that became made his name and became a book club choice. And then Venture he, to the Interior was was about what? 
after the war, he did some work for the Colonial Development Office and he went to what was then Nyasaland to explore what they should do with some of the territory that they had. And he went up this mountain, Mulanji, and in the course of it, a young forester who was looking after the forest and lived in a little hut there with his wife and new baby insisted on coming with them. And after about six days, a huge fog was coming in over the mountains from Mozambique. It has a special name, I've forgotten what it's called. And they were freezing cold and they knew they had to get back. And this meant they had to cross a river in spate, in flood. Right. And the young forester volunteered to go first and he was tied to stakes and told you do not swim you keep your stake there and you walk halfway across he decided to swim oh my goodness and he was swept away oh my goodness and the body was never found and his wife and baby were and my father had to he went over all these hills and dales and gorges to get to the forester's cottage to report what had happened he he did that in the course of about 12 hours which was normally uh, an incredible journey trek yeah but that tragedy is the center of the book and it's called venture to the interior because it's the venture into the interior of africa and venture into the interior of oneself so it was a sort of psychological um a double exploration, if you like, of the external world and the internal world. And then the second book was... Called The Lost World of the Kalahari, right. and that was the Bushman. He, he went in search of an original Bushman tribe, and he finds them. And he, he made films which were shown on the BBC, and you can now still get them on YouTube. So when I arrived in England, they were being shown on the BBC, but they look so old-fashioned now. He's very stiff as he stands there talking about it, and... It's just very black era. and white and flickering. But just a different era. A different era. I mean, extra- I mean, extraordinary yeah. foresight to have made films about it. Well, it at least he's recorded. Yeah. I know, I'm jumping ahead a little bit because we're just talking about your father now, but um, I think I'm right in thinking that um, he was a mentor to Prince Charles and I think I read somewhere that he taught Prince Charles to talk to his plants. I don't know about that. But you know, a lot of... Guff has been written about right. that. I have never forgotten. He did take Prince Charles to the Calvary. He did? Yeah. They went and they camped. And um, a cousin of mine, I mean, my father was always very discreet. He would never talk very much. But a cousin of mine who went with them was camping with them. And he talked to me a little bit about it. And I have never forgotten um, opening my Daily Mail. I knew they were in in the Kalahari. They didn't know what they were going to do, but I opened the Daily Mail and there was a huge piece by somebody purporting to know everything that was going on. As I write, they are sitting in the Kalahari. They are screaming to the skies. They are bowing down to... I mean, it was a load of tosh. This man not only didn't know what they were doing, he knew he didn't know. (laughs) So, I mean, I... My father never told me about that, and I have no idea if it's true. No, it could have been true. Uh, we, we, My father had a very poetic, mystical side. It could well have been true, but I have no idea if it is or not. And and uh, am I right to think he became godfather to um, Prince William? William? Yes. Well, I think my father offered something that Prince Charles's family didn't, which was... My father was the most charismatic man, I think, that I've ever met. I mean, he could talk and charm the birds out of the trees. 
I mean, I had an email just the other day from somebody. My father broke a hip once on his way to South Africa, and he ended up in a clinic in South Africa. And I had an email just a month ago from somebody who'd been in the same clinic. He'd broken his back, and he said, I was a long-haired, uncouth boy. He said, who most Afrikaners hated. He said, your father was just wonderful. Um, and it, it was tended by nuns. He said, every nun was prepared to throw off <laughs> <laughs> father by the end but he was quite a player from what I understand was he? I think he was, was, he was. but he wasn't I mean I think they were all very meaningful I mean I've known some of them that <laughs> he didn't just to use a crude phrase sleep around right. no, they were meaningful um, but there were quite a few meaningful quite ones. a few meaningful <laughs> ones <laughs> So your next charm um, is an ostrich egg. I was really excited about this ostrich egg because I love really tactile, lovely things. And I actually have a collection of ostrich eggs. Goodness knows why, but I do at home um, in the middle of a table. So I kind of oh, love because they have so much texture on an, on an ostrich egg that you don't really... No, and they're surprisingly sturdy. Yeah, they really they, are. Yeah. yeah, my kids have but thrown them the ones, a bit. I've got a, a collection too. The first time I took went back to South Africa and we took the children and I went to stay with this same cousin of mine, Chris, who went to the Kalahari, who was always going to the Kalahari. He used to take his children hunting there when you could mm. still hunt when they were young. And he and his wife gave me an ostrich egg that had been decorated by the Bushmen. Um, and that's one of my most precious possessions. I just loved it because it's it's just that they just used charcoal. You know, those ghastly painted eggs that you see yes. at the airport are just too hideous for words. This has this plain um, charcoal graphic on it that the Bushmen etch. But I'd, I'd seen it in kind of um, light brown diamonds um, just all the way around. And, and all. It's because they have a sort of slightly speckled eve. They do, thing. don't they? Yeah, so it's not a perfect... It's not it's all one colour. It's not smooth. And it's, it's got smooth. this amazing Slightly texture. Rough, yeah. yeah. And I'd, I'd love to have it as a locket. I think it should open and have a crack yeah, where, it's, the, where the chick might come out. Because, you know, the um, the Bushmen, well, they firstly make a mega omelette. But, <laughs> uh, but then they keep them, they drill a little hole at the top and they fill them with water. Oh, do they? They use them as water carriers. I had no idea. I think. But you chose that really... Um, Thinking about your father and the Kalahari. The Kalahari's featured largely... I, I mean, I've been to Botswana many times. I love Botswana. And I love particularly the Kalahari, the mm. desert landscape. Um, there's a sort of low, low-level low grasslands, which are very beautiful. And you see a particular bird, um, a pale-chanting goshawk, sitting on top of the mupani oh, trees. Um, it's it's absolutely beautiful. It's not what one imagines as a desert at all. But you've travelled enormously. I was whenever I'm wanted to go somewhere, I'm always wanted to call you to say where should we go. But is Africa still one of your favourite places? It never ceases to um, fascinate me, and I, I suppose particularly living a very urban life, I do love those huge skies. There's the wilderness areas but I mean it's changing even you know I wrote a piece about Tanzania about two years ago now 
and I was so shocked by what I saw that I went back to check the population the first time Neil and I went. The first time we went was in 1977. There were 15 million people. Do you know how many there are now in Tanzania? 58.8 million. My goodness. That is absolutely staggering. It's, It's No wonder. I mean, the habitat is shrinking, people need space, um, you know, the land can't sustain it, less there are not enough less. jobs. No, it's, I mean, population is the real scourge of this, of the disaster hitting the planet. So your next charm um, is a punt. Clearly that was a very important part of your life when you met Neil, your husband. Well, I met him after six weeks in this country. So how did you meet him? My parents, my stepmother had never had children. And so my stepmother, for reasons which at the time I found hurtful, but now understand, didn't want me living in the house. She didn't want to run a domestic house, you know. She fancied herself as a writer. She wrote in the mornings. And then they had, at that time, a very glamorous social life, you know. Vivian Lee and Larry Olivia and all these, you know, Ray Richardson and Prince. (laughs) They were all part of their circle. Right. So they found a room for me in a house in Carlisle Square. And Neil, whose family were in Scotland, was in, had been in it. He wasn't in it when I arrived. And so I was alone one Sunday night and the phone rang and I'd seen all these letters. They used to come in and they used to say, Captain J. N. Crichton Miller. And I used to think, gosh, that's a really lovely name. <laughs> <laughs> and the phone goes one Sunday night and it's Captain J. N. Neil Crichton Miller. <laughs> He says, is there any post for me? So he came round to collect his letters. So it was love at first sight, was it? Apparently he went home and said he'd met the girl he was going to marry. And what did you say? Well, I certainly thought he was pretty nice. I mean, as he stood against the window and we talked for about three hours. Three hours? <laughs> I love that. He just came for the letters. So that's how you met him. But tell me about the punt. Well, our first date, he'd just come down... He was very glamorous. He'd come down with a double first and he'd been president of the Cambridge Union. So he was very much a figure. And highly sought after, I imagine. (laughs) Yes. So, and with a gang of them were all going back for May Ball. So we went back and it was, what I didn't realise how unusual it was, the weather was wonderful. I just thought summers were like that. (laughs) And we went in a punt the next day just you down, and he? No, with some of his friends right. down the cam and had picnic lunch. So, I think down at Grantchester. You know, it was to South African. You can imagine how it knocked one for six. I mean, quintessential English day, isn't it? I exactly. mean, it absolutely is. So I had imagined this, this punt using pale blue sapphires for the kind of Cambridge blue. Oh. Um, and inside yellow gold but kind of ridge so to look like the planks of wood the planks are lovely so I think that's really important but my goodness you've been married a long time now I'm not sure how many years it is I'm not going to tell you how many years I know you're not going to tell me but it is a long time it is a long time um, and two children and many grandchildren Um, but I mean what I was going to ask you was um, I mean I've been married for 30 years and I think I've done pretty well actually but I want to know um (laughs) what the secret of a truly happy marriage is. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, having been the child of divorced parents and not having had a family life, 
I knew that that was the one thing I wanted above everything, and I did not want it broken up. So I'd have, if I'd had to swing from the chandeliers, I'd have done it. <laughs> I did not want a broken family. It, you know, it, it had been in many ways, you know, a huge loss. When I see my kids with their kids and see what it means to grow up in a really happy family, like you and John with your four, you know, it's a totally different thing from growing up alone with a mother. Because you and I share that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Uh, like you, I knew I didn't want to just be one of one. I didn't want to have one of one. No. So your next charm um, is a pair of skis. The, the way I, I visualise these skis, uh, I was going to ask you if you had a particular ski that you liked. Well, no, I never owned my own skis. I did own my own boots. But I'm, I'm kind of wanting to put on the, uh, on the boots. I think they should be in diamonds somehow. There should be lovely diamond clips <laughs> uh, that work. I want them to work. Oh, gosh. Well, that's really important that they, yeah. would, that they work. Um, but we could work out what the colour of the ski is going to be when you, if you kind of have a thought of what that might be. That's lovely. It's just that it's some of the happiest families' holidays we ever had. We took the children skiing very young and we all we used to go every year. Who was the skier, though? Because, I mean, South Africa wasn't a lot of skiing oh, no, no, in South no, Africa. No, so. no, I learnt. And I remember... I was sort of inflamed with envy because Neil had only been once. He'd been with the university party and he went skiing up there where I imagined it was all very glamorous and I was on the nursery slopes. <laughs> so I thought, I'm going to be there next year. So I just worked like crazy to, to be up there with him. Well, I know a bit about your skiing. <laughs> um, I mean, goodness. Um, but sporty, have you always been sporty? Because, I mean... Other than skiing, I know you're a very good and very keen tennis player. Um, I'm not very good. I'm rather well, a sad case. I'm very keen. <laughs> I, I suspect you're better. If, if the skiing no, is I'm a bit, No, I'm a better skier than I am a tennis player. So I'm going to go on to your next charm, which is typewriter. I mean, because presumably before the the age of digital, you were absolutely writing on a typewriter. Absolutely, and that's it's sort of part of the nostalgia of, of Fleet Street, which for me, you know, I worked with Harry Evans. I, I was on the Sunday Times for five years. I mean, Fleet Street, working at, at the Times at that time, must have been such a fun, exciting It was a glorious be. time because journalism was changing. The whole cohort of talent had come down from the north. Harry Evans himself, um, and there was that whole thing of the Beatles and a whole... And, and there were all these sort of wonderful working class plays, I remember, like Saturday Night and Sunday Morning and Look Back in Anger. And the, the, the whole culture was sort of being churned up and Changing, refreshed and, and, and liberated. Livened. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. The, no. Well, the Sunday Times was the place to be. It was where every journalist wanted to work. And somebody called Hunter Davis. Yes arrived and changed the stereotype of the woman's page, which always had a fashion piece, a cooking piece, an interior design piece, and then a sort of heartthrob piece. I had breast cancer and I've survived kind of piece. You know? <laughs> right. And what did he change it to? He, they, were, they weren't just for women. He called them the look pages. Right. And then just as Hunter was leaving, and I was feeling pretty miserable because I'd so loved working for him. He was, he was such a sort of optimistic, happy person. And somebody was coming in who I didn't think I would get on very well with. Uh, the phone rang and it was Sheila Black saying that um, she was leaving 
um, the Financial Times and she wrote this page called How to Spend It and how would I feel about over. it? Yeah. Oh, well, so that so that was a whole, yeah, goodness, that was a complete change actually for you, wasn't it? Really? A complete, but the great joy of it was that I, it was both the joy and, and the the worry was that I was in complete and utter charge. I mean, if anything went wrong, it was all my fault, <laughs> you know. And did you but enjoy that? I, I think it found me, it took me a little while to find my feet. I mean, I think it was quite a new, you know, I realised now, I mean, I was thrown at the deep end. Nobody helped me. Nobody came near me. You know, I'd had to ha- generate the ideas, generate the illustrations, generate everything. And commission other people or were you writing it all? In those days, it was usually only one page. I would write it all. Right. And then... I think the then I arrived just as the great editor Gordon Newton was leaving and Freddie Fisher took over and Freddie Fisher wanted me to use Clement Freud as a cookery writer and I was sitting there with a year's contract under my belt so I felt quite secure and I said I'm afraid I don't like Clement Freud's food at all I don't want to use Clement Freud and I just found somebody called Philippa Davenport so I used Philip Danford, and after about three months, he came in and he said, "My wife just loves Philippa's recipes." Few, <laughs> but yeah. I mean, so how to spend it then um, was just a page. It was just a page, just a in page, a, effectively as part of the Financial Times on a Saturday. The and thinking had been that during the week, the paper told them how to make money, how to manipulate the city. male audience. Yes, but yeah. that on Saturdays it went into the home. Right. Into a domestic environment um, where women would read it and where people were interested in domestic things, shopping and f- clothes and food and all of that. So was that, was that the beginning of talking about um, all the luxurious, lovely things that we... All I didn't are... think in terms of luxury, really. That, I think, developed much later when How to Spend It had to find a focus, the magazine. But right. in the early days, I was really... I mean, I very much never put anything in that I didn't like. So it was very much my taste, my interests. Yeah. And yeah. fortunately, other people began to like them too. Well, it was truly authentic and people loved um, truly authentic. So food was a, was a big part of it. What other... I what? didn't write the food. I, I got Philippa Davenport, right. who, who I thought had wonderful taste in food, a certain English elegance yes. about her food. And I would write about... I, I had children at the time, they were young, so things, you know, to do with children. Design, I was very interested in the home, new designers coming up. I was interested in clothes, mm-hmm. so, and that world was changing. There was always something to write about. Then it grew, and as, you know, it was really the Financial Times was the parish newspaper of the city when I arrived, and then it grew internationally and became this great big international paper. And... I mean, I had to become more sophisticated, more global and more international as that happened. The good luck and the bad luck was that the powers that be weren't really interested in it. They thought of it as kind of peripheral thing. Right. They were interested in the World Bank and politics. <laughs> so they let me get on with it. Um, but it meant you had no... Nobody ever said, oh, that's great. No, right. Nobody ever took any notice or interest. Um, well, they obviously did because it, it, it's great. Well, eventually they it. began to realise <laughs> that it gained ads and that and readers of course of yeah. course 
So, and what it's become is this: is you know, the magazine are mainly about luxury and and things that people aspire to. This word, this massively overused word, luxury. What does it mean to you? Well, I like using it's a very overused word. It's become a sort of a shorthand for people wanting people to think their things are better than they actually are, very often. Um, You know, they have some cheap cashmere and call it luxury and hope that'll do the job. Yes. So I'm very, I personally don't like to use the word very much. Um, It's very interesting. When I had some columns on the Times, when I wrote my introductory article because they I think my column was called Luxury with Lucia and I wrote my introductory article about what luxury was I asked a whole lot of people and almost everybody cited experiences or time yeah I mean in our western world we're all very spoiled aren't we we are very spoiled I mean I forget what clothes I've got because I've got so many my mother knew every dress she owned yeah I do like Beautiful things. I suppose the things I do tend to collect tend to be old. Right. Um, you know, in Africa, I will always try and buy one special thing instead of a mass of tat. Yeah, and, and, and have a memory. And have a, and memory, have a memory, exactly. So those are the things I buy now. I mean, what I spend my money on now is my tennis lessons, my piano lessons, holiday, restaurant, food... Everything that's memories. Everything that's creating memories. You talked about piano lessons, which brings me neatly onto your final charm, which is a musical note. Yeah. Um, so tell me about that. What, why have you chosen a musical note? Well, because it's become very important to me. I, I learnt the piano. Um, my grandfather was founded the South African Orchestras, and so music, um, classical, you know, the great Bach and Brahms and, and, and Beethoven um, and Schubert were always the background Mozart to my life. My mother listened a great deal. And I learnt to quite a high level at, at, uh, when I was young. At school? Uh, at school. Yep. And then I did one year, actually, of a B-Maz at university... But I found it was impossible to continue because reading B. Mouse is composing, playing, history of music, um, theory. I mean, it was about five different, six different subjects. Um, So to make up the one. So I gave that up. Also, I heard somebody called John T. Solomon playing music that I was playing and I thought, oh, I'm never going to be able to do that. Well, you obviously were very talented. and, and I, I was good. I was good, but I was never going to make a soloist. But you're, I think I'm right in thinking that you're one of the people in lockdown who challenged yourself to learning a new piece. Yes, right? I Which did. Which piece was it? I heard uh, there's a wonderful series on Radio 3 where they do Composer of the Week. And during this year, which is the 250th anniversary of the birth of Beethoven, Beethoven is the Composer of the Week every other week. And I heard Jonathan Biss in one of these play the Sonata Number no. 27, Opus 90. And I fell in love with the second movement. I just thought it was the most glorious thing I've ever heard. So I've learnt that. Glorious. 
Okay, I will and listen to it. And it's such a joy to play. I picked it up, the piano, three years ago when we did our basement and somebody's lent me a Broadwood Baby Grand and my grandchildren's piano teacher, she was asked by my son, would she... Uh, he gave me as a Christmas present three lessons and she thought, my God, I'm going to teach this old lady what it's going to be like, she tells me now. <laughs> Little did but we she fell know. in love with each other. Little did she know we fell in how love talented with each other. you were going to be. She's wonderful. But have you, do you think, um, I mean, do you think you've always challenged yourself throughout your life? Is that something that has come from childhood or is it something that's grown? Well, what I do think is I like doing things well. I don't, I mean, it's like food. It gives me no pleasure not to do it well. There's no pleasure in it. Right. I, I think that's probably the answer, but I was going to ask you why you think you've been so successful in your field, because I think it's pretty unusual um, for one person to be writing for, am I allowed yeah. to say, 40 yeah. years? For 40 years for a magazine, which is pr- for, for one for one newspaper or title I mean it is extraordinary accomplishment well I mean there are certainly many greater writers than I am I think what I did have was that people tapped into my taste and I think I was able to communicate with the reader which a lot of much cleverer people don't necessarily connect I think I was able to connect. I mean, trying to think about it. But also, yeah. I, I'm sure that does come back to the being very authentic things that you genuinely like and admire. That's true. I never, ever did anything that I, I didn't. And I was very lucky in that respect that I was left alone yeah. at, at the FT. Nobody ever made me do it. Do anything. No. But I'm sure that's why anyone I know... Uh, who have started a business, they always want Lucia van der Post to write about it. It is the absolute ultimate. So you've lived an incredibly full life with a wonderful um, family, grandchildren now. Is it what you imagined your life might have been when you were collecting shells on the beach? I think if somebody had told me when I was 17 that this is what my life would be, I'd been very thrilled. Oh, well, we should be so proud. Yeah. So, so proud. Lucia, we've covered your life in Seven Charms and it's been absolute pleasure to talk to you about it and learn so much about, about your life. I just, as you know, um, I would like to make you one charm. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you. That's really wonderful. And I wonder which charm it will be. Goodness gracious me, that too. That's really wonderful. I'm torn between the um, ostrich egg and the sea urchin. I think maybe the ostrich egg means most to me. Well, I'm really excited to make the ostrich eggs because I think it'll be absolutely divine and really tactile. And we're going to make it a locket so you can put something special inside it well I think that that would be really wonderful Anushka incredibly generous but when somebody um, one of your great grandchildren finds this seven charm bracelet what what would you like them to imagine that their great grandmother was oh gosh 
Well, certainly all my grandchildren, we've taken to Africa on safari. They all know that, as one of them said to me the other day, it was the greatest adventure of his childhood, mm-hmm. taking him to Botswana. So maybe that's what you want them to remember as an, oh. as an adventurer and traveller. Uh, well, somebody who loved them. <laughs> somebody who loved them. Perfect. Gosh. Thank you so much for listening to My Life in Seven Charms with me, Anushka Dukas. Please do like, review and subscribe to hear our latest episodes. Thank you to Fairly Media for our audio production. 